Hi, my name is Amar. I'm an econ student at Case Western. My name is Zach. I'm a first year medical student at the CUNY School of Medicine, and welcome to the MSX podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field and learn from their insight and expertise. Joining us on this week's episode, we have Dr. Calvin Sun. He's a New York City-based emergency physician, founder and CEO of the Monsoon Diaries, and a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. For the first question, I kind of want to first introduce a little bit more about what Monsoon Diaries is. I can't even define it. If you asked me 10 years ago versus yesterday versus now, everyone has a different impression of it. I mean, the best answer to it that have been, has been the most accurate in my experience is asking you what you think it is. It, it is what you make of it. I have no idea what the Monsoon Diaries has become. It, it's this organic thing that's grew on its own. And I think by trying to label it or define it, it will just jinx the growth that it has enjoyed so far. Uh, I guess that the, the closest thing I can describe it is, uh, it started off as a travel blog on my solo travels when I was a first year medical student, so about 10, 11 years ago. And uh, it showed on tell, right? For the definition of pictures of worth a thousand words, what about a video? Uh, that scene where Forrest Gump is running around the country by himself, solo travels. And then over the course of months to years, more and more people started following along. He didn't care for them. He didn't expect them. He wasn't running for them. He's just doing it for himself. Uh, he doesn't even knew, know, he didn't even know what he was running about. You know, Jenny left him for like the fifth time or something. And it wasn't for her. It was just, you know, something to find himself. But he, he didn't even, wasn't even able to verbalize that. I wasn't. I was just blogging as I was going along. And then I looked back and then there was these hundreds and hundreds of people who, came along and created this community and they call themselves monsooners. And, you know, I don't, I'm not looking to recruit anymore. I'm not looking to, you know, expand and I'm not looking to make any money. I think because of that, uh, it just grows even more. Uh, and yeah, I don't know what it is and what's going to become, but I'm looking forward to the day that does get to define itself. And so like, what are some of the most common reasons for people like traveling in general? Everyone has different reasons. Everyone's probably going through yeah. some kind of crossroads is the most unifying answer I can give you. But those crossroads can look like a million different ways, depending on the circumstances, what trip they sign up for. I think the trip that I choose to go on, uh, well, I picked the trip because I want to go personally. And I don't care if no one shows up or 500 people show up. I do it for myself. And I've stuck to that. Uh, just like anyone like you would post I'm going to Spain this winter break. I'm excited. That's what I did. And that's what I've been continuing to do. I want to go here for my winter break or for this vacation or this weekend. And then people just show up. People ask, can I join along? Who am I to say no? So I said, yes. And then they show up. And then my first time meeting these strangers are usually, you know, at the airport or at the lodging that I choose at the, the destination, at the country that we've never been to before. And for that, it requires some kind of, I guess, motivation to get to that point, to travel with a complete stranger you only read about online or a friend through a, a friend of a friend, or you heard about what he's doing, you want to see if he's a real deal or whatever the reason may be. So the, the, the reasons may be varied and mixed, but I think it's all because it self-selects for a certain personality type, usually going through something 
a circumstantial event or crossroads in life that they you know, want to better understand. And they use a tra uh, travel as the medium in which to explore that crossroads, those crossroads. And it could be simple as, as I want to take a, you know, winter break, but I don't do those kind of trips where you just go into a resort and relax. I do these trips because I want to backpack and explore place alone. And people come along for that adventure to join someone that has never been to a place before for that authentic experience, because I've never been there. I don't know what to expect. And people want to be a part of that rather than a comfortable trip where you follow an expert that knows the area really well. And, and there's no really surprises or serendipity. And that's a different kind of trip. So I guess with the monsoon diaries, it selects for a, someone that is going through something or the trip self selects a certain type of person going through something. And that's where the community builds because similar people will do similar things. And I guess different trips will attract a similar group of people that become friends for life. So you talked about like actually going in and experiencing these different cultures, right? So it's not just like going to a resort. So my next question is like kind of on the uniqueness of humans. In sociology, there's this like thing called anthropological universals or like human universals, I think. I think that's like anything that exists in common between every human culture. So it's like clothing, dance, jokes, language. And I know there's, there's like not many of them. What are some universals that you've witnessed by visiting all these cultures? And what has that kind of taught you about culture in general? That everyone is wrong about everything. And there's no right and wrong. Has that paradox for you. That humanity is a paradox. There's no such thing as right and wrong. And everyone's wrong about everything. That is what is unifying. There's not one way of doing things. You can't really generalize humanity. Uh, and it's very hard to come up with an answer that says one common unifying thing other than the fact that the only unifying thing is there's nothing unifying. At the same time, that is unifying that we come together because there are just so many differences. I mean, we all have to eat and sleep. We all look for joy in different ways. Uh, and there's a common language we can you know, approach different cultures without me having to, have to learn language, just a kindness, respect. Um, but respect and kindness can also look in many different ways, depending on the culture. A thumbs up may be great in one culture and it be an insult in another culture. So that's why you can't really unify one thing um, that can be prepackaged in a nice Hallmark card. It's really the fact that you have to go in with no expectations, an open mind, and be open to even the idea that you could be completely wrong and this could be the most unique culture that you've ever experienced because you also are the unique vessel in which you're coming to that place. So it'd be unique to your perspective, but maybe the person you're traveling with right next to you may see it as a completely familiar culture because they come from different backgrounds and they might speak a different language, you know, not literally, but figuratively when they interact with that very same experience that you're interacting. And that's okay because you are sharing a space where we're realizing that there really is no expectations uh, when you travel like this. And based off what you were just saying, uh, you know, just how different everyone really is around the world. Uh, so what are some of the different ways people have sought healing that you've noticed? The fact that people want to go on this journey when it comes to trauma. And uh, people, generally cultures don't want a quick fix in terms of a larger approach to trauma and healing. Uh, healing is a process. It's not something that is abandoned and go. I mean, the only thing that is an exception is that many of the culture, many of those same cultures uh, respond to that 
by looking for a quick fix. So it's the idea is like the thing that you want and need is not necessarily the thing you actually do. We, and a good example is here, we love medicine to just fix things. People come in for the, all these symptoms that usually can be taken care of for it or disease that can be taken care of by supportive care. And yet people come in for that one drug or that magic pill that they can swallow. So they can make, you know, make it go away. But then you really ask them, those very same people that ask for that wonder drug for that quick fix will be like, no, 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 I let my body fight it out on its own. Or like, it's a process or like I do all these wellness and self-care to prevent this from happening, which is a journey in, in order to, you know, rectify it. So, you know, that's what I find that's also unifying and different from everyone that this is a paradox. Humanity is a paradox. Uh, we are all emotional creatures. We're not creatures based out of logic. We're not Vulcans. We do things that are actually opposite of what our intentional goal is. I mean, we judge others by their behaviors, only ourselves by our intentions. So that goes with beyond just medicine and po just politics and human behavior. People have the best of intentions, but end up with the worst kind of behavior for those good intentions. And we have to reconcile that. And I think traveling creates, well, as long as you're not hurting and you know not creating too much of an impact of the place you're going to, but you're creating a space for yourself that's sustainable, you, you know, ethical travel, you're creating a space where you can explore and reconcile that cognitive dissonance that we grew up with. Because what you're socialized before you started traveling and stepped out of the bubble, you've been socialized to be this one identity, but the intersectionality of identity uh, predisposes you to something completely different when you actually live your own individual personality. It's an identity crisis. And, and a, a travel act is a space where you can explore that identity crisis and it could get worse even, or more complicated, or you find more at peace with that increased complication. So that's healing. Healing is a complicated process. It's not just about getting better, but it's also better understanding what you're going through, what the trauma was, you know, was in your life and the meaning behind that trauma. And so most people choose to not deal with it and repress it. And some people want to go head forth and explore it willingly, rush, run into the fire, if you will. And those are both not, I mean, not valid, but both approaches to trauma that we see in every single culture in person. And kind of like jumping off from this point, I was reading your med school survival guide uh, blog, which I thought was like really fascinating. And you ended off with a bunch of rules uh, for monsooning. And just talking about monsoon rule six, you mentioned uh, to give yourself enough me time for introspection, self-awareness, and ultimately self-forgiveness. So I was personally wondering, what were some of the best insights that you've gained from your own moments of introspection at some of the locales that you've like explored? I mean, we just discussed the the first part of this podcast is that no one's right or wrong. And there's this, you can really discuss it something to death. There's meta upon meta upon meta. Um, the answer to every question is it depends because it really does. And, you know, you, you, you can only explore yourself and judge yourself. The second thing is, you know, like exploring yourself and judging yourself, you get to choose what to worship. Uh, it's David Foster Wallace, This Is Water you know, being present and being aware of what's around you and realizing that you are, you know, where you are, uh, you get to control whatever it is that you want to believe in. As long as it doesn't hurt other people, no one's taking that away from you. You can choose to believe in serendipity and magic and the fact that, you know, it's that something that had happened to you was meant to be. And you could choose to believe that it's completely random and happenstances. And as long as either supposition doesn't hurt anyone, you're valid in both going both ways. 
uh, Life of Pi, the story with the animals is the better story, which is why people choose to believe in magic and God or religion or spirituality. Or you want to, you don't believe that animals is the better story. You're, you want to be purely clinical and logical. And some humans are like that too. And that's okay too. You can only judge yourself. Uh, and that being said, you can, you know, choosing what to worship that also leads to just forget self-esteem forget self-esteem. Self-esteem is the idea that you want to live by these, this idea of something perfect that society dictates to you what is perfect. Something that's free from mistakes and free from fallibility. No human is free from mistakes. Every human is infallible. Therefore, you will never live up to that self-esteem, which is why it can be toxic. This idea of self-esteem of taken too far, too far in account. I get the intention, right? The intention of self-esteem is great, but the behavior with self-esteem, how people approach it and what it you know, signifies to people can be very toxic. That's what I meant by intentions and behavior. Self-forgiveness is an action that only promotes self-love and self-acceptance of who you are. And that you're meant to learn from your mistake. You're meant to be better. As long as you're not hurting other people and taking other people's freedoms, when you make your own mistakes of trying to, st you stumble in a, a, a test question that you got wrong or a miscommunication that you use as an opportunity to communicate better to the person you miscommunicated with. You know, these are all opportunities. There's no such things as mistakes, just lessons, as long as you're not hurting other people. Uh, that gives you an opportunity to become better. And that only is possible with constant self-forgiveness, not trying to live up to self-esteem, right? Self-forgiveness allows you to move forward. Self-esteem just makes you feel guilty. And that guilt can turn into shame when you, you know, if you constantly not live up to that self-esteem, you start to, you know, conflate that uh, an action that you did wrong versus into something where you become, you think that you're a bad person. Those are two completely separate things, guilt and shame, an action versus you, who is your person. And that's what self-esteem can lead you to. Finally, empathy and compassion. Like we promote empathy in medical school all the time. I'm a big proponent of empathy for your patients. But then I also realized after COVID, when hundreds and hundreds of people coming in, you cannot empathize with every single patient that comes in because you're going to run out of gas. You can't pour from an empty cup. Pretty soon you'll collapse if you try to identify the pain and suffering with every single patient that walks into your emergency room. Pretty soon you can't take care of any patients and the whole system collapses because we need you to be the healer. And we cannot live this society where healers are expected to be wounded all the time and not take care of themselves and always put others before themselves, which is what we've been trained to do. But that is not a sustainable system when society now depends on us two, three, in times like a pandemic. So what's the alternative to empathy when I realized in my spaces is there's such thing as compassion, tough love. Someone where you see and you identify that they're suffering, you validate their suffering, but you don't get into the well with them to the point that you both of you can't crawl out of it. That's empathy. You see the tough love and you throw them the rope so they can climb out of the well so that both of you are going to be okay. But they got to do the work. You can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink it. Right. So you can show people the door, but they're the ones who have to walk through it. If you try to try to fix people's problems and try to fix them for them or, you know, suffer with them to a degree, you're not necessarily giving them the opportunity to pick up on the, of themselves and become better on their own. Because even if you fix all their problems by that logic, they're going to start resenting you, actually, because you did all the work for them and they didn't feel like they couldn't do it themselves. And you feel like they, you're the one that changed their lives and not them. And they're going to start resenting you. And that, that's not the place you want to be. Hence, what's compassion is the idea that you'll be their safety net. You'll be the one that shows them everything. But they're the ones who has to own it because they're a human being themselves. And you have to, you respect yourself enough to know where your boundaries are. And you respect them to be, to know that they'll be able to walk through that door on their own.
That's interesting. I've actually, I've never heard about the difference between like self-esteem and um, self-forgiveness. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And I'd love to kind of dig more into that, especially since like for, for like imposter syndrome and stuff, the solution oftentimes is, oh, your self-esteem is too low. So let's try to boost your self-esteem. But from what, what it sounds like, uh, that could actually be detrimental. Right. So you're so tired from imposter syndrome. How do you have any energy to boost your own self-esteem? Oh, boost your self-esteem. Yeah. Easier said than done. Do you know how much energy and spoons it takes to boost the self-esteem that's dictated by society in the first place? <laughs> you're already exhausted by imposter syndrome, feeling shit that you may not you know, belong there. And all of a sudden, so I was like, well, you got to improve your self-esteem. You're already tired. In fact, that actually invalidates their experience. It's okay. And, and it's, it's validating to, uh, to, to assure someone it is normal to have imposter syndrome, especially in things like medical school, because everyone's going through at the same time. That's not boosting your self-esteem by telling you, hey, everyone's going through imposter syndrome. It's validating your experiences. And that's actually a step towards self-forgiveness. Forgiving yourself for having imposter syndrome, forgiving yourself to realize that you may not be the best at everything you do. You're not the top of the class anymore. That's self-forgiveness is it's okay. I'm only human. This is how I become better. And that actually leads to the next step when you realize that it's, you're creating the confidence to be that person that's confident enough to say, I don't know, to be confident enough to say, I don't know everything. I could be middle of my class. And that's the first step, self-forgiveness. To the first step to clearing the air and then becoming better so that you are the best person you can be rather than trying to compare yourself to other people and this idea of a esteem, this esteemed idea of who you are dictated by society. That's exhausting. Definitely is. And so what are some steps you think like students can take to build their you know, ability to self-forgive? I mean, I'm biased. Travel. <laughs> I was $200,000, $300,000 student loan debt as a medical student. My dad died when I was in college. Uh, he was our only source of income because my mom, you know, was just someone that took care of me. I mean, I guess they ran a motel when I was younger, but that collapsed. So my mom just, you know, couldn't take care of me anymore after my dad died. Um, definitely was not a place to travel. Uh, I wish travel on people. I wish that you people can go on trips as long as it doesn't, uh, you know, hurt society, uh, you know, as long as it's sustainable and doesn't hurt anyone around them. Traveling is very healthy, can be a very healthy place to start uh, uh, creating a space for self-forgiveness. But the, the former why I brought my dad's death was not to show that like, hey, you know, I didn't have much income and I had student loan and I still traveled. We'll get to that later. But the second thing is I don't wish this on people, but I bring it up because it's important. Trauma. Like I didn't get to start this journey until that thing happened to me. That thing being the summer of 2006, my dad died of a sudden heart attack when I was 19 after an argument with him. Uh, he got on a treadmill and died of a sudden heart attack. And my mom got formally died with Parkinson's that same summer, a few you know, weeks around that time. And then my partner, she broke up with me right after my dad's funeral because she was seeing someone else. Uh, fine. I mean, I was, her, we were, it was her first relationship. I didn't, you know, not looking back and forgive her because, you know, it's overwhelming to deal with that as your first relationship, which is ironic because my first relationship when I was 13 uh, was a one year long relationship. My partner, my first partner, her dad died of a sudden heart attack in New York City subway uh, within two months of getting together. And I, you know, had to reconcile and I was stuck with her, which, you know, that's the thing I learned from that experience in summer 2006, where just because I did this. I can't expect other people to do the same for me. Everyone's their own person. And that was the beginning of the journey. Realized I can't judge other people. 
my partner breaking up with me and my I ran to my dad's funeral at the time I was upset, but that was 19. Now I'm looking back, it's like she didn't do anything wrong. I can't judge her. She had her own reasons. It was overwhelming. She's not me. And that's okay. She wanted to have the best summer ever between her freshman and sophomore year. And I was holding her back. And I truly loved her enough to support her in whatever she wanted to do. And it may not be the best for me, but you know, who am I to hold her back and resent me and you know the, the circumstances? It wasn't a right fit. And that's when I realized, oh my God, I'm actually creating my own happiness. My happiness is not dependent on someone else, someone like her. It was our first relationship. We really, my entire happiness and well-being is going to depend, be dependent on someone's first time being in a relationship in college. You know, we were 19, she was 18, you know? Uh, you know, just because I do something doesn't mean I expect other people to do the same thing. Only I can judge myself whether I want to be in something like that. And I chose to realize that, okay, many years after the fact, that you know we weren't meant to be and we weren't a good fit and it was good but it was a great fit when it was happening before the breakup for those six months now that was a space and i learned self-forgiveness i forgave myself for being that i forgave others for, and that allowed me to forgive her and other people I mean, it took a few years but that was the beginning of my journey that summer 2006 and it was the worst and best summer of my life and i reframed that worst summer into the best because that was the beginning of my self-growth and self-forgiveness. If it was, if it weren't for those tragedies, I don't know if I ever would get to this point. Not that I wish that on me myself still or other people. So it's kind of complicated, right? That paradox. I don't wish trauma on you or anyone listening to this, but we both, so how do I say this? But we both know that trauma can be reframed. I'm not wishing that, but we it is can be reframed as an opportunity for that self-forgiveness. You know, it's like, I don't wish infidelity on a relationship. I don't wish affairs on a relationship. I don't wish, you know, cancer, a diagnosed cancer on anyone, but we have to acknowledge that affairs and infidelity does reframe a relationship that could actually lead to therapy and you know, reconciliation for an even better, a more passionate and more loving relationship. Maybe they finally addressed the problem that was, that was, that was ignored for this whole time. I don't wish cancer on anyone, but maybe the cancer diagnosis has allowed some patients who've survived cancer to look at life with a different vigor and sense of purpose that they were blind to before the diagnosis. So trauma is unfortunately that space, which I don't wish on anyone, but that goes back back to what we said in the beginning of the podcast. It's paradoxical. It's so hard. You know, you were at the tip of the, it's the tip of our tongue, what we want to say, but we don't know how to say it. And that's the paradox that we live in. And that's where I, what I learned in the spaces I created for myself. And in way after that, I didn't travel until I was 23, four years after, you know, that, that, that incident with my dad and, you know, that summer with my, what happened to my dad and two years after I graduated college when I lost the bet and I found myself alone in Egypt, uh, my first time being alone in the winter of 2010. So, but then that's the, the next thing, travel. I do wish on people, on people because that's controlled trauma. It's controlled trauma. Everyone loves to travel. They see that as a positive thing, but when you actually do it, and at least the way we do it, they see this adventure kind of travel, they're scared. It's traumatic. You're really taken out of what your routine comforts. You could play in a place in a, in a, in a situation. You don't know anyone. Nobody knows you, you know, even finding a place to sleep, where to eat is nerve wracking is stressful. We don't remember when we come back. We only remember the good things. Memories are a wonderful thing, but you know, at the moment, and this is why I have a travel blog. I remind myself to in the future. So when I read their travel blog entries, that it was traumatic. Like it was literally traumatic to be plucked out of my routine to figure out how to survive in a place where I didn't know, one, know anyone, no one knew me and I was alone. 
but we see it as a positive thing. So maybe that is the reconciliation of what I wish upon and uh, wish for others is that may you have a space where it is a positive space like travel, where you're on an adventure and you know that you're going to be fine, but you still have to be the one to walk through the door, drink the water, being do all the difficult things you know you're going to be fine because the safety net is there right because you're in you hopefully you chose a a good safe place to do so but the even the action of finding you know that taxi driver to take you to that hotel when you get out of the airport and you're alone it can be stressful and kind of a mini trauma but then you're now finally creating space where you get to know yourself you're finally free from all those distractions of social media the next assignment the next test the next essay or things for other people telling you what to do a friend trying to reach you and have their problems you're free from all of that and now you can actually the only person you can talk to is yourself this is your only chance finally in this world that's so connected with social media this is your only chance to be in a foreign country we don't have internet or technology where you can finally have a conversation with yourself and learn how to be your own best friend again It's definitely something I need to try. Don't try, just do it, man. This is this is Yoda level stuff where you just I didn't I didn't want it. I didn't want to travel. When I was in Egypt, I was bartending and this girl that never left the bar was like, "Hey, you want to, you know, I mean, one drink led to another and she was like, "Do you want to come to Egypt with me tomorrow?" And I'm like, "No." And then I made a bet with her and I lost it. And I'm a man of my word and I went, but I didn't go for the travel. I didn't go to create a space for myself. I went to prove to this girl that I was a man of the, my word and I wasn't going to flake. On my promises. That was it. It was just for a girl. And then I ended up being alone for the next three weeks because I found out later that she was only there for a few days. They changed her trip. Uh, and then, you know, they came back kicking and screaming after three weeks. You know, it took me three weeks to enjoy traveling. The first week I hated it because I thought I was going to die every moment. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Because I didn't know anyone. Second week, I was like, okay, I got the hang of this. And in the third week of that trip, I came back and I was like, oh, I see why people love traveling. And then I was hooked. But it took me three weeks being dragged kicking and screaming into a space that ironically now create for others uh, and known as a travel guy, where you say that you want it. You want it more than I did. So you're way more ahead of me. So go do it. Do you need to lose a bet to get there or can you do it on your own? And that's what I wonder for myself. If my dad hadn't died, if my mom didn't get sick, even I had that breakup, even I, if I didn't lose that bet, would I still have it in me to just do it randomly when everything's going well for me? I wonder if that's to this day. Am I a victim of circumstance or am I an agent of chaos and you know in the driver's seat? We don't know. I can't, and it doesn't really matter because here we are. I'm the one being interviewed, which is kind of nice to be in the seat. I have no idea what I'm doing. It's essentially the, the short answer to your question. I have no idea. And I don't want to know. Just fly by the seat of my pants. Just keep running like Forrest Gump. You know, we often hear that doctors are incredibly like, risk averse often due to the set career path and the stability that it offers as a job. What's your perspective on that as someone who admittedly has taken like a pretty unconventional path? And what are your implications, you think, for this statement being true or not? I mean, you're generalizing by assuming that and the majority do choose being a doctor because it's secure. And I'm grateful. I mean, they're not wrong. You know, even in a time of COVID, even when it seems things seem pretty insecure for a job, you know, Uh, assurances it's still a privilege like to be a doctor uh and i do acknowledge its security but the benefits of its security even at its worst time after covid like we were all worried about finding a job when you know jobs dried up after the first wave uh, when they didn't need any doctors and furloughing everyone you know it still was a place where we knew that no matter what we'll get a consulting job well you know with our mds like in do's Uh, doctorate level degrees, you know, we can just make the worst cases, like travel to a different country and work in New Zealand, you know, for the time being, work in the Cayman Islands. 
Um, not a bad gig, you know, com- you know, considering what other people in other communities without that access to privilege have to think about over the kitchen table. So, um, yeah, it is safe. It is a secure thing. But the, it's not about what you do, but how you do it. I chose an unconventional route because life chose to be unconventional for me. It's not conventional that you have your father die of a sudden heart attack right after having an argument with him. You know, it's not conventional to have your mom get Parkinson's at the same summer or be diagnosed and finally realize that, you know, she's disabled. Um, And it's not just something that it's like a side effect of an antidepressant medication, but it's a permanent condition something you can't fix anymore. you really don't realize that she has a diagnosis that you cannot fix with a magic pill or avoiding something you know not common to have your partner to break up with you after a tragedy right after a funeral of your loved one or your parent uh all it's not conventional to have that all happen in one summer and i realized that 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 summer we realized you know what you can't control life sometimes these things happen and it's not about what happens, but what you make of it. It's the meaning to you, the, what you, what meaning you choose to see behind those tragedies. And they could be totally random and you're, you're the victim of happenstance, or you can choose to say, you know what, I could still be the victim of happenstance, but I get to choose what to worship. So screw it. I'm going to choose to see as meaning and reframing my life into something where I have agency. And if in a, in a world or in a universe where it seems like there's no agency because of all this chaos, at least let me have the agency of how I respond to that chaos, which for me was, and I didn't, wasn't, it wasn't conscious at the time. So don't think I just all of a sudden started yelling at the mirror. I was like, oh, I'm going to run into the fire. That didn't happen. It was more like I created small little habits of like, you know what, this feels good. This feels good. Where, you know, instead of letting things happen to me, I subconsciously just felt like it was just better to just run towards the next thing rather than letting, waiting for it to happen to me. Because that summer was things happening to me. After that summer, I was like, well, I didn't like that feeling that happened this summer. So let me try something different. And, you know, the subconscious that starts to run towards, you know, uh, controversy or trauma or confrontation. When someone had an issue, I immediately addressed it, tried to see how that felt, felt much better than having the person confront me. So I stuck to that. And it became like Pavlovian, where like I subconsciously thought made that to a habit where, you know, I became I wanted to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I wanted to at least have the agency. If trauma is going to happen, let me be in the driver's seat in front of you and run towards the fire. So at least I'm in control. So if life kicks you in the ass, I'm going to turn around and kick it in the ass before it kicks my ass next time. So that's, you know, it's going to inevitably happen. So why not choose how it happens the best to your ability? I mean, don't get me wrong. I can't control everything, but at least I have me in that habit or that space of having created a habit. When it, when it does happen, I'm comfortable because I made it a habit to always be comfortable with it up until that point. And that's been explained for COVID. When that happened, it was still a very scary time. The first wave, we didn't knew nothing about it. It was our first pandemic in our lives, especially in my so early in my medical career. But because I had lived a lifetime and just being comfortable with the uncomfortable, then when it happened, I was still uncomfortable, but I was comfortable with it. And here we are. So that speaks, that is a long answer to your question. Are we risk averse? Doesn't sound like it when I tell you my answer pretty risky taking kind of person, especially when someone as a doc who chooses emergency medicine as a specialty, we throw ourselves into every patient's worst day of, of their lives, car crashes, heart attacks, people getting stabbed, trauma, you know, things that they didn't expect one minute and they walked in the emergency room the next minute because something happened they didn't expect, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of a risk, you know, laden specialty, but 
ironically, the beginning of our podcast, we talk about paradoxes and, you know, and, and, and things that don't make quite sense when you, in a logical sense, in a logical way, that's emergency medicine. We are actually doing, you know, the way we approach emergency medicine, those risk prone uh, presentations, and especially being a risk prone environment, being exposed to all these, you know, diseases and potential threats and, you know, patients that are belligerent is to be risk averse as possible. Emergency medicine is the approach of medicine where we're trying to diagnose the worst possible thing. So you don't have to worry about it when you get discharged. It doesn't mean we're able to diagnose everything. We might miss hundred percent because if we caught everything, then every other doctor's specialty will be out of a job. We're here to only diagnose and our specialty lies in diagnosing the worst possible thing, even though it may not be the most likely. So if you come in chest pain as a 30 year old, we still have to think about a heart attack. We have to still think about a clot in your lungs. That's a very risk averse approach in a very risk prone environment, hence the paradox. And who are we but existing in that space of paradox? You might as well just get used to it rather than letting it happen to you. And hence, that's why I recommend creating a space like travel, that paradox of a positive thing. Everyone loves traveling. That's a wonderful thing. But in the moment, it has a lot of negative, can be a lot of scary, negative, if you will, negative feelings associated with it. But is that negative really a negative or is it actually a positive? And that's the paradox. Yeah, I love you tying that in back to the, the theme of paradox in the beginning. Um, but as we're you know reaching the end of this episode, I was wondering if you just had any final parting words of advice for anyone that's pre-med in med school, uh, you know, that's on this path and, you know, maybe, maybe thinking of travel, uh, any words of advice for them? I mean, you said it yourself, you found the 20 rules of Monsuni that I put in my blog post. So it would be those 20 rules in that medical student residency survivor guide I wrote uh, when I graduated, that day I graduated residency on June 30th, 2018, three years ago. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 20 of them. So what do you want me to say? Sleep more, exercise, have a good diet. Those are really easy. You know, eat your vegetables. Who's not going to say that? Uh, everyone's rolling their eyes. But the more important things in that, those 20 rules is always do it your own way. The first doctor didn't have to take the MCATs or the boards and somehow they became a doctor and we celebrate them with Osler, you know, did he have to take the MCATs? No, they, they now make all these hoops that we jump through. So learn the rules, I guess, until, so you can break them properly if you believe in that. But I do believe that there's a lot of room for improvement or medical education. And, you know, maybe it's okay to be the iconoclast if you feel comfortable and that's who you are. I mean, if you're the rule follower and that always worked out for you. I'm not speaking to you then. But if you're in a crossroads and something just doesn't feel right and you're just kind of like, like how I felt, you know, when I decided to become a doctor, uh, it's okay to be different. It's okay to do it your own way. I became a doctor because I, after Egypt, I realized that everything I thought I liked wasn't the case. I thought I hated travel. I thought I would hate it. I thought I went, I went to Egypt because I wanted to follow through my promise to a girl I met at a bar to show her that I was a man of my word, not because of traveling. I thought I would hate it. I did hate it until three weeks in. I came back. I was like, oh my God, I love traveling. How did I know that being a doctor wasn't right for me? Because at that time, I, after my dad died, I gave up on becoming a doctor. And I was, I was really happy with that. I was happy being a bartender, doing my own thing. I was generally thinking that was it. But be, after Egypt, I got in this whole tizzy of like, oh my God, maybe I don't know myself. Maybe I'm actually rebelling against my dad for the rest of my life. Maybe I'm rebelling against the Asian American stereotype. Uh, then they win. The whole paradox, right, of oh my God, like society's telling me I should be a doctor. Everyone's expecting the Asian guy to be a doctor uh, so that me not being a doctor is rebelling against them. But if I acted like that, then my entire life would be then defined by those that society stereotype, by my father, and they will still win in the end. 
if I live my life like that? How do I know it's, that's really coming from me? Did I, did I want it or did I want the want? I didn't know. It was like the poison cup scene from Princess Bride where eat, both of them seem poisonous. So I might as well just, just do it. And that's unfortunately the, 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 sometimes the deck of cards in your life. It's you know, one way or the other. We don't know. So just take one of them rather than just live in stasis. So I took that bet like I did with Egypt where I applied to every single medical school with a 3.0 GPA or whatever. Yeah, I like a B minus C plus in my own biochemistry, a 31 MCAT score, you know, average. But like my, even my, my advisor was just like, you're not going to make it. And because I was so honest in my intentions and so genuine, I ended up getting in. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I got to do this now. And because so many people kill for that, that opportunity to become a doctor. I'm not going to squander this. But I wasn't sure at the time. And because I wasn't sure, I was open to anything, open to not becoming a doctor, open to doing consulting, opening to not, you know, being applied to residency. And then when I had an advisor in med school saying that you were bottom half of the class, you almost fell out two, three times, you're not getting to residency. I was like, sure, I was open to that. And then when I applied to residency, I told them that the closest, the reason why I want to be an ER doctor was because it was the closest thing the bartender could think of. But other than that, I don't know what other motivation. And explain, like, in the ER, you're behind a bar, you're like a bartender, you got to take care of the same kind of patients. In fact, the people at the bar ends up at the ER. So you might even know some of them, which I did. And, you know, you got to you gotta move as fast as possible, not too fast, because then people feel like you're stiffing them a drink. And you want to take too, too long either, because so many other people waiting for their drink orders. And you, the guy interviewing me, you're like my bar manager. You don't do anything but make us work. And you just go around saying, hey, give this guy a towel on the house. Give this guy a motor on the house, like, you know, what bar managers do. And they were like, that was the best damn answer to the question. You got the job. And then here I am. Now, it's not about what I became. It's not become, I became a doctor. I still became a doctor, right? It's how I became it. Because if I actually just went and studied and became a doctor after my dad died and didn't travel and didn't have that journey, but almost failed out of med school because I was traveling so much, then I'll become a doctor. But you wouldn't be interviewing me right now. I'll just be like, yeah, I'm this idea of traveling, I'm, I'm thinking about doing it because I haven't traveled all my life uh, because I was studying so hard to be a doctor. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. You know, then it's too late. You know, then you wouldn't be interviewing in the first place. But I still became a doctor, but I can look back now and say that my journey was completely unconventional. And the reason I'm here right now is because of travel. Ironically, the thing that made me almost fail out of med school and resident and get kicked out of residency was the thing that kept me in it. And that's the paradox. You have to own yourself. You have to know yourself. And even at that time, I didn't know myself. That's why I was constantly traveling to create more spaces to get to know myself better. So you don't even have to be ready. You just need to be on a path uh, to get to that point. So always do it your own way. Uh, and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise, because you don't want to become that doctor and realize you live somebody else's dream and not yours. And it's okay to still be a doctor, but it's not about what you become. It's how you become it that defines whether you know for sure if it was you that wanted it or it was someone else's. It's how. And I can look back and say, like, I became my own doctor. My dad is rolling in his grave if he, if, if he probably does or he does know how I became it. Because he did, he did not want me to go become a doctor the way I did, traveling all this time, almost getting kicked out, failing out. But that doesn't matter because I'm a doctor right now. And I'm sure at the end, of he's like, you know what? I'm a results-based person. He still became a doctor. Uh, and that, yeah, it's not about what. It's about how.